Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Robin. And you're listening to Bowel Moments. The podcast sharing real talk about the realities of IBD. Served on the rocks. rocks. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Before we get started, I'm going to give you a little content warning. Today's show, we dive into some sexual subjects. And so if you have any trauma that relates to that, you might want to skip today's episode. Some of the topics that we cover um, may be triggering to you. But today we are talking to Dr. Elise Bedell. Dr. Bedell is an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral neuroscience, and she's the director of the psychogastroenterology program at the University of Chicago Medicine. She is also a sexual health therapist, and she specializes in treating patients with IBD. So today's show is a deep dive into IBD and sexual health. We talked to her about her specializing in sexual health. We talked to her about her role as part of a multidisciplinary team at the University of Chicago. We talked to her about sexual trauma. We talked to her about intimacy, defining and exploring and expanding that definition of intimacy. We talked to her about What does that look like for people with IBD who are experiencing things like fistulas, or maybe they're in a flare, or maybe they're just exhausted, and people's regular definition and idea of biological sex isn't working for them? We talked to her about the idea of sex and intimacy outside of the binary and gender norms. We talked to her about how do you find a sexual health therapist. We talked to her about so many things. Without further ado, our conversation with Dr. Elise Bedell. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bow Moments. This is Robin. Hi, guys. This is Alicia, and we are really, really excited to have this guest on. Please help me welcome Dr. Elise Bedell. Dr. Bedell, I'm going to give you a chance to tell people why we're particularly excited to have you on the show, but we're going to start out by asking you the very unprofessional question of what are you drinking? I am drinking an IBC cream soda, and I did, my, my husband did, did some shopping yesterday, and I told him I needed a, quote, fun drink. Surprise me. And so he brought back a, a four pack of these. So oh, pretty funny. pumped. It is doused in ice and looks a, a lot uh, classier than perhaps it actually is. It does. It does look like you're having a fancy pants drink. Does, I love a cream soda. That's so fun. Thank Yay. Yeah, thank you. It is. So I'll take my first step. <laughs> there you go. Robin, what about you? I'm drinking the lime sparkling water, the lime La Croix. La Croix. Very La Croix. nice. Good choice. Mm-hmm. I am a big fan of La, La Croix. Robin, guess what I'm drinking? Rosé? Are you drinking drinking, rosé? I'm drinking rosé. It is very, very nice. Elise, again, super excited to have you on the show. Now, next question for you is, tell us your IBD story. Why did you choose inflammatory bowel disease for your particular profession? So my interest in psychogastroenterology, I'm a GI health psychologist, so that's kind of the name of the field. My interest in it really did start with IBD. I have a close family member. I witnessed her journey with Crohn's disease starting as a teenager. 
And I originally, like I think, you know, many people kind of was thinking somewhere in the health space, maybe thinking about being a physician because of her experience, thought about gastroenterology, but actually in in witnessing that experience really got to see how much I think was missing in many ways from the psychosocial aspect of her care. And so eventually I had figured out that I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. And really when I discovered that psychogastroenterology, so really specializing in the care of folks with GI conditions was a thing, it really was my light bulb going off that I really felt like, okay, that's exactly where I want to be. So now I work with a broad range of folks with gastrointestinal disorders, but I actually would say at this point, um, and I position at the University of Chicago, I do have a caseload of majority uh, patients with IBD that I see. So that was kind of how I got here. And I guess what is my interest beyond just, you know, intimately knowing someone who's had it? I just think stigma in that space and bowel issues in general and GI issues is something that I just love to work with patients on. I think like it's a huge privilege to be one of the first people that a patient may be disclosing some really sensitive topics in their life. And I do think that I have a a pretty good way about navigating it sensitively, but also with some humor. So it's, I think, plays to my strength in that domain. And so, yeah. That is really wonderful to hear. And I think there is a lot of our folks that we talk to that that's the reason they get involved in, in inflammatory bowel diseases. They do have that family connection. And so seeing their family member go through this, for lack of a better word, journey is really what brings them over into the GI space. After you started getting involved in this particular side of the world, when did you develop your particular interest in sexual health as part of your profession? Yeah. So the sad story is that most healthcare providers, including psychologists, get very little to know training in addressing issues related to sexual health. So my story could have gone that way. Thankfully, it didn't. I actually did my clinical internship year at the University of Chicago, and I spent a year working in oncology, in oncology psychology, so working with um, patients dealing with cancer. And I was very lucky to spend six months of that um, working with Dr. Amy Siston, who is a psycho-oncologist, so a psychologist specializing in oncology, and she um, is a certified sex therapist. So in that work, I got introduced to this area, and And that I would say, honestly, is the second light bulb for me um, in my career where I, A, loved the work immediately and it totally resonated with me because again, stigma, shame, big areas in that space. And so there was just something that felt so natural to me in navigating those conversations with patients on sexual health related issues. Similarly to the kind of feel that I get in working with patients with GI issues. And then secondly, I sort of had this realization that there's really nobody doing it. There really are not GI psychologists that have this kind of training. And so as much as it comes up with our patients, I think it is one of these things where sometimes it's a little like, oh, should we ask? Because do we really have the skill set to know how to work with it? And I was really excited to be that person who could help with both, could work with folks with IBD and other digestive diseases, but also be able to talk to them about their sexual health and their sexual satisfaction and to actually be able to work with them myself rather than having to um, refer them out to a different sex therapist. Alicia has said that on the show a couple of times that oftentimes doctors don't ask those questions because they don't feel like they have the skill set or don't want to delve into it because they don't even know where to send people. But when you're talking about stigma, it's like, 
first of all, you, we have the poop disease, right? So nobody talks about GI issues. And then second of all, when you do have any kind of sexual dysfunction, that's also like you don't talk about sex. Exactly. Even if you're not raised in a traditional purity culture, United States in general is just an overall, <laughs> this idea of purity culture, even if it's not religious purity culture, like you don't talk about sex. So it's like double whammy over here with IBD. Absolutely. And I think the reality is that for most patients, they're okay with you not necessarily being able to fix it yourself. I think even opening up the space as a provider and just being able to talk about it as a part, a normal part of most, many, if not most people's lives. I think, I think that, I mean, that's, I think what I've learned at this point is like, that is still therapeutic to talk about it. And thankfully, one, one thing that I'll, I'll be, you know, happy to, to talk about more today is that there is a lot of hope for this. And even if your own provider can't help with it, there are many people who can't. So I think for, you know, for many gastroenterologists and other types of IBD providers out there, like it's okay if you're not the one to treat it, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't be asking about it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Why is it that there isn't more training on sexual health and sexual function in medical school or in all of these training programs as you as, as healthcare professionals go into your field? Mm-hmm. I mean, I realize you're entirely going to be speculating because you didn't write all of these curriculum and you're not in charge of this, but do you have an idea of why this isn't more readily talked about? It's such a great question. I don't feel confident in an answer, but as I guess I surmise, I think so much of the time time sexual activity is considered like the gravy like it's like you know it's not it's not that (laughs) important right like you can live without it it's maybe not really up there in the hierarchy of needs and so I think for many people working in healthcare spaces it's like well let's keep you alive let's keep your body working right even when we're talking more specifically on on mental health it's like let's get you psychologically stable and able to work and socialize and like yeah sex that's a thing right I also think there's this you know totally it's a total maybe misperception that that just comes naturally to people. It just not that complicated, right? And it's just, I mean, maybe the case for some, but many people like do need to talk about it. And for many people, it is work, regardless of what kind of sexual activity we're talking about. For most people, there's actually a lot that is not just intuitive about it. So those are, I guess, some of my theories. And then I think, again, beyond that, we go back to stigma. You know, I think my my experience, and, and I'm maybe going a little bit beyond your question, but I think a lot of times we're comfortable, and I say we thinking about research or, you know, in healthcare, or even just sort of in our society in general, we're talking, we're comfortable talking about sexual activity when it's linked to procreation and to fertility. It's like, oh, that's a permissible thing because it's not so much about like pleasure. Sexual activity for the sake of just sexual activity for pleasure is like a little bit harder for most of us in our society to get down with talking about it in like more professional spaces. So I think some of that does just have a trickle down effect that it feel it kind of gets deprioritized among other things. That's my two cents. No, I love it. I think that makes a lot of sense. It really does. I do agree with you. I think, you know, we see this in just in general, this idea of sex is always talked about in this very, like, like you said, sort of procreational way and not necessarily as something that people do for fun, like just keep your legs shut kind of situation. Like, okay, but like people have desires and needs and that's like, anyway, it, I get real, I get real frustrated about this real fast. Me too. Me too. Sounds like 
all of us. That's a good thing. Yeah. Need some more people fired up. <laughs> There's going to be some soapboxes for sure on this episode. I have a feeling <laughs> for both Robin and myself. So as part of a sort of holistic IBD team, the, so the way the University of Chicago is set up, it is a great, really like 360 view of patient care. And I think that's mm-hmm really amazing model. So, you know, typically people are coming in because they have a complicated case of Crohn's disease and they need to see a GI that maybe is a little more specialized, that kind of thing. So they go in, they see one of the doctors at University of Chicago. Typically that's probably the entry point, not usually through you. And then where do you come in? How do you come in? Yeah. So I am typically part of the conversation pretty early on. So when patients are newly diagnosed or newly present to um, the University of Chicago, it's oftentimes part of what they're sort of pitched as part of the package here, right? Like part of the treatment team includes that we have a GI psychologist who you have access to. Oftentimes, I may that may be a good point of referral. I would say, in particular, maybe for folks with IBD, where they're newly diagnosed, and that's why they're presenting at that point, or if they're previously diagnosed but new to University of Chicago, oftentimes it's because they've gone through a big life transition and they've moved, or because they have maybe not responded to a medication or are having a new flare, and that actually precipitated a, a change in their provider and a change in their hospital system. So a lot of those situations would be a really good time to touch base with a GI psychologist if you haven't already. But I would say apart from sort of the like life changes or more IBD specific changes, patients might be referred to me like when they are struggling with anxiety about taking a new medication or the prospect of having a major surgery. So, you know, patients who maybe were never, you know, never heard about me before might hear about me in those instances. And then sort of the process from there is that, you know, the gastroenterologist or GI APN or, or whoever it is on their team, I get a lot of referrals from our dietitians too. They might talk to, you know, talk to the patient about the referral to me. And as long as the patient is agreeable that sure, they're open to to it, then um, I'll meet with them for a one-hour evaluation, talking about their IBD, how they're coping with it, what their symptoms are, what their treatment plan is, sort of get a well-rounded understanding of them psychologically and socially, and their sexual health is part of that conversation. So they could be referred to me because they're dealing with a sexual health issue, and that's sort of the presenting problem. But more often than not, they haven't even disclosed the sexual problem to their GI treatment team. And so I might be the first one to be asking about it or that they might be comfortable sharing that with when I meet with them. Yeah, I can definitely see that, that that would be you. I mean, because of the types of conversations you're getting into with folks that you'd be able to either discern that it might be part of what's going on with them or or that they might be more comfortable disclosing that to you. So it sounds like that's just part of the intake when a patient is newly coming in the center, it's like, okay, here's your, like, how's your disease doing? What's your sexuality? You know, what is like, how are just things in general? And then it's sort of things get triaged from there to dietitian, potentially a health psychologist, that kind of thing. So that right. makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things that people probably are curious about, because you are specifically trained as a sex therapist or sexual health therapist. So that is like exactly. a particular amount of training that you've done in addition to becoming a health psychologist. So you just mm-hmm. keep going to school which is great. But a lot of people probably are confused or don't exactly know what that means. So can you give a definition of kind of what is a sex therapist? Yeah, absolutely. So so I would say, you know, we do, we call it sex therapy or a sex therapist, but really like we should think about that as being short for sexual health therapist, right? Because I think we have very, very, we have very narrow definitions of what sex means, right? But so kind of think about that as like a nickname. 
So a sex therapist does not necessarily need to be a psychologist. It could be a therapist of any kind of background, meaning a licensed professional counselor or a clinical social worker or a psychologist. And so it would be a mental health professional that already knows how to do psychotherapy, talk therapy with you know specific interventions that has then gone on to seek out additional training that would help a person cope with and improve upon their sexual health and sexual satisfaction or their sexual sexual functioning and, and sexual satisfaction. So a sex therapist very rarely would be only trained in dealing with sexual health issues, right? They should kind of be broadly trained and then, and then they've gone on to specialize. Then so then from there, yes, absolutely, tons of people do not know what sex therapy would look like. If anyone listening has the curiosity, if you know, is there like any kind of sexual stuff that's happening in that type of sex therapy? You're not alone. That's actually a thought that a lot of people have, and it makes them very nervous to pursue sex therapy. And the answer to that is is no. It's all talking, right? It's all uh, talk based. Um, so you're not going to have to get nude on camera, and you should be very concerned if someone's asking you to do that. But we do. Do talk nitty gritty details. We do not talk in vague terms. We use very specific sexual ter terminology. Sometimes that involves using more official biological terminology. And oftentimes we want to make sure that we're providing education on what those terms are. But we also use a lot of slang terms because the point is being very clear in understanding each other and getting used to speaking the same language. And that is more tricky when it comes to issues of sexual health because most of us aren't used to talking about this. And so we all have sort of like different languages and we have to make sure that we get on the same page with it. So really, I would say, you know, we are, our sessions would be mostly spent on figuring out what are a person's sexual goals. That's really different person to person. Some people do not even care at all about sexual activity. Some people care an awful lot about it. Some people are here to, are there to see me because they're interested in improving their solo sexual activity. They're interested in developing a sexual relationship with themselves through masturbation. That's awesome. You don't even have to have a partner for it. And then some people may be coming in that they have an established partner or casual partners um, and are really interested in improving their sexual functioning around that. And so we really tailor our goals toward what the person is looking to get out of it. And we work to understand not only if there could be biological medical factors that might actually be contributing to things like pain or inability to have an orgasm. That can be true in many cases, but really as a sex therapist in my role, I might be helping to make sure that I'm identifying those and to linking the patient up to the proper medical professional, but I'm really there to help them on the psychological and social pieces that, to be honest, are the biggest drivers of sexual problems and reduce sexual satisfaction. I'm going to figure out how I ask this question because it's a little sensitive here and I might have to put a trigger warning in here, but the, unfortunately the incidence for sexual assault for especially women tends to be quite high. And we're talking about because of the type of interaction you might have with the doctor, there's a fair amount of like, obviously, you know, we're talking about having somebody in your genital space, very closely in your genital space and things having to be done. And, you know, especially, you know, thinking about in some of the times the surgeries, how like you're having to get things tested, inserted, things like that. Yep. I know this could be a really big trigger for a lot of people that even if you weren't having, it's not necessarily like you're having sexual dysfunction as in you're not having this, but it's that you're being triggered by something because of just the nature of disease and where you're having to have medical intervention. Yep. 
Is that something that you as a sexual health therapist would get involved in? I mean, because it really is both mental health, but also probably some sexual sort of triggering that's happening there. So I threw you a real curveball question. You weren't expecting that one. So feel free to. I'm so glad you asked it. It's a a very relevant question for many people who would be listening, I, I expect. So in terms of my involvement as a GI psychologist and sex therapist, the answer is kind of like yes and no, or yes, and then there's some boundaries. So what my absolute goal would be, would be to to help understand what we might think of as kind of the Venn diagram between a person's IBD and their experiences related to that, right? So invasive exams, feelings of vulnerability associated with hospitalizations, procedures, right? All of these different things related to their IBD. Any history of, well, that really already intersects. You can already see the Venn diagram forming with history of trauma, which that could be the trauma, right? This could be a more medical trauma related that that becomes related to their body, but also experiences outside of that related to sexual assault can certainly fall in there as well. Because as you said, that's common, whether it's IBD related trauma or or sexual assault, the way we might more typically think about it is similar in a general population. And so that is a, a Venn diagram that I would be hoping to help the patient understand and see. And also perhaps the GI team to be able to see, because most likely this is not just impacting their sexual function, but it's also impacting their ability to proceed with their medical treatment comfortably at all or without re-traumatizing them, which I see all the time, people pushing through, but really being re-traumatized by this additional testing. So I guess it's really a a third part of this diagram is their sexual function and sort of how that's being impacted. So the, the IBD and related trauma history, sexual function, like where do those intersect? Again, it's not unusual, as as kind of you've mentioned, that I might be the one that also I have the privilege of hour-long sessions with folks that our medical team doesn't have, right? And so we have the chance to really dig into this and for a patient to maybe get more comfortable to disclose some of this to me. And I would say that if someone really has post-traumatic symptoms that rise to a degree where I really think that they need to have a specialized treatment, I'm going to refer them at that point to a PTSD specialist, a trauma, a trauma therapist. It is not unusual, though, that after that treatment, which thankfully is also quite effective, they can come back to me and we can actually work on those sexual functioning issues once the traumatic component has been addressed. So I might be there to kind of like help sort it out, to provide referrals, to provide recommendations on at least how they could continue to proceed with their medical treatment. But then, like I said, the trauma itself, I, I typically I typically would recommend a specialized provider, but not at all unusual that at that point, once that's, once that's better addressed, they could be in a good place to pursue additional GI-focused psychotherapy or sex therapy with myself or with somebody else. You're kind of like the air traffic controller of that, aren't you? Like you're like everybody, all the planes coming in at the same time. So. It does feel that way. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things you mentioned is sort of your ability to go and work with the GI team to help them understand some of these concepts that again, you maybe get an hour in medical school doing. So is that a piece of what you do? Like, do you have, for instance, like at rounds every once in a while, do you like give some topic that the medical team can learn from you about around 
inclusive language or how to ask these questions or how to approach these topics? Like, how are you interacting with the medical team to provide that education? Because for lack of a better word, this is a continuing evolving space. The more we learn about trauma, the more we learn about post-traumatic stress, the more we start to acknowledge and work with people that are part of the LGBTQI plus community and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. pronouns and all these things that are sort of changing rapidly. How are you kind of helping the team stay on top of things and understand how they need to be working with the community as a whole? I think at this point, I've made it my goal to do this at two levels. One is within the medical system that I'm in. And two is to do things like this, right? To be able to talk about this in settings that get outside of just my colleagues and my patients. I also speak at conferences on this. I'm writing about this. So definitely trying to work on disseminating these types of this topic and these types of topics, even outside of my medical center, outside of my own medical center. When it comes to my own medical center, I would say, yes, it can be, these can oftentimes be one, like one-to-one conversations with my colleagues about particular patients. And I think in some ways that actually can be the most effective way to teach is to say like, hey, this is the patient that you referred to me. You know, I have the patient's permission. I want to share this with you about their history and about the ways in which this is impacting their treatment. And thankfully, I really have never, knock on wood, I have really never encountered a colleague of mine, another provider that isn't extremely receptive to hearing my take on this and to be able to be as sensitive as they can and to figure out how to best support the shared patient that we have. So I would say oftentimes these are kind of more one-to-one communications, but I definitely do present um, to my colleagues. This is the first year that I'm very excited. This academic year, I'm going to be more involved in the GI fellowship. So, you know, meaning the actual, you know, people on the medical side going through training, I'm actually going to be more involved in their actual training experience. They're going to spend some time also observing me in clinic, which I think is another great way to go and, and great to get with the trainees because they're not all necessarily staying here. They're they're going to be going off into other places and can hopefully spread some of this knowledge um, where they go. And then similarly, I also train psychology students. So I I take students from around uh, the Chicago area and I train them in both GI psychology and sex therapy. So that's another way, again, kind of on like a a smaller scale, but with the idea that if every year we're sort of getting more, more people trained, more exposure in this, little by little, we can exponentially increase the knowledge on on these topics. Well, what we've heard from a lot of our medical professional folks is that it takes one interaction with somebody like you for people to be like, heck yeah, I love this. And like, I want to, I want to do this. And so I'm guessing there's a lot of people going out being like, yeah, I'm going to evangelize this sort of way of being. So that's really cool. So you are doing some research, I think right now, I believe is on ostomates and sexuality in particular. So what sparked your interest there? And can you give us a sneak peek of what you're learning in your research? Yeah. So it is early. It is early days. We are just starting recruitment. So I can't tell you too much about what we're learning yet, but so I can tell you if what you're an estimate that out. would like to participate in the clinical trial or in your in your research, like maybe yeah. we can help you. Okay. Actually, yeah. So actually I had mentioned um at another point that, you know, my interest in sex therapy began by working with a psycho-oncologist and that person 
was initially my supervisor and is now my colleague and a very close colleague of mine. And so she and I both had this idea because both of us do sex therapy. For me, of course, it's primarily in a context with my GI patients. For her, it's primarily in a, in a context with her oncology patients. Um, and she and I have really both noticed how difficult it can be when we really aren't inside the romantic partner's head and don't have really good access to them when we are working with each of our respective patients. So most of our therapy, even sex therapy, still tends to be quite individual. We do sometimes bring the partners in, but the partners may not always be available, may not always be receptive. And frankly, this is what we noticed as we were you know, discussing this over weeks and months. There also is really not much research at all to provide guidance on how to work with romantic partners of folks with some of these various conditions. So we were really interested. What she sees a lot of is people, in particular women, who have undergone mastectomy. And she and I both see a lot of folks who have undergone ostomies. So a lot of times you have ostomies as a result of a cancer diagnosis as well. And so we were really interested in trying to develop some better strategies to help our patients with ostomies and mastectomies by understanding better what tools their partners need to get on board. And so the way that we're doing this is kind of iterative. So we've, we've developed an interview, st- interview study, which we are just recruiting on now, where we are actually interviewing the romantic partners of patients with permanent ostomies and with mastectomies and trying to better understand the impact that this surgery, these two surgeries have had on their relationship, on their sexual functioning. We are asking very detailed questions about how they have coped with this as a couple. And so our hope is from here, we can start to develop better interventions that can be used to support the partners who can then also better support our patients. And this is really something that is a, I would say, I mean, to our knowledge, we always have to say, but to our knowledge, this is a really untapped space. And so we are really excited to be able to try to fit this other piece of the puzzle into the the knowledge that we have um, with these respective patient populations. That is really interesting. And I, I'm very curious to hear what you find out from folks because you're right. This is, you know, usually, usually there are two people involved, some, sometimes more or less, I guess. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it is curious to sort of get their opinion on this and say, you know, what, what has this done for your relationship? How did this change your relationship? I think that could be really interesting. In this same vein, tell me a little bit about just generally talking to people with fistulizing disease too, especially, you know, if they're retrovaginal fistulas or, or sort of fistulas that are affecting your vaginal area or your, right. how are you working with folks with fistulizing disease? Yeah. I think it's in some ways no different than with Mm. anyone else. It's just sort of up the ante, I think, on understanding some of the modifications that they might need to talk through, even like just making sure that they've sort of talked with their surgeon about, you know, making sure that that area is safe um, and the ways that they can be safe sexually if there's active disease going on. But I think, again, a lot of it really comes down to working on reducing the shame and the stigma. So that can be an individual process and trying to help a person feel like they are still a sexual being and can still see themselves as attractive and that their partner can still see them as attractive. But I would say, yes, when we're dealing with partnered dynamics here, it's really essential 
really, really essential to be able to bring the partner in and to make sure that the partner is also aware of that patient's emotional and or physical discomfort and to make sure that we collaboratively develop strategies. I would say on the most practical level, though, sometimes certain types of sexual activity are off the table at different times. And so I think that's, again, why I would say we want to be so careful about using the word sex, which, by the way, anyway, sexual intercourse is really what sort of oftentimes we're thinking about when we say sex, but really biological sex. That's really the definition of that, right? But there are lots of ways that people can engage in sexual activity. And so there are times if a person has an active fistula and depending on where it is and depending on it may cause pain. It may actually not be comfortable to engage in a penetrative sexual activity. And so that is when we want to make sure that if a a person and a couple is not already thinking about an expansive definition of sexual activity, that might be a lot of the work we're doing. There are lots of ways to experience pleasure, even sexual pleasure, but many people I think can kind of get caught up in routines that they're used to. And so being able to sort of think through that over the course of your disease, living it with it, and over the course of your relationship, there might be times where you can engage in certain activities comfortably and enjoyably. And then there are other times where it may make sense to pivot. And we work on embracing the fun that that can include when you get out of maybe that normal routine, even if it's because you have to, but sort of try to look at it as you get to, like you get to try something kind of different. I want to point out real quick that you don't have to have fistulizing disease for this to be true for you. Everything that Dr. Bedell just said, because even if you just have, and I say just have pelvic pain, or you are going to the bathroom 15 times a day, or anything that comes along with IBD can affect you feeling, even feeling like wanting to engage in sexual activity. So these conversations are so important. And I feel like sometimes we all, not just women, but we all as humans just accept that that's the way it is and that's the way it's going to be. And we don't have to, it can be better. And uh, we don't always know that we're not always told that we don't always understand that. And the only way that we're going to understand that is through conversations like this and listening to experts like you and talking to our partners, honestly, and letting them know that things are uncomfortable, or we have to do things in a new way, or we have been going to the bathroom 15 times, which also means that we have to admit to our partners that we are maybe having a flare again, which we haven't wanted to admit or, Mm -hmm. you know, so there's so many more nuanced conversations that are involved in all of these discussions. But what it comes down to is that you don't have to continue on the way that you are. You can have these kind of conversations, advocate for yourself, talk to your partner, talk to a professional like Dr. Bedell, and you can get the help that you need. And Robin, I think even piggybacking off of that a bit further is just is the fact that for folks with IBD, sometimes sexual activity, period, is taken off the table because you are too exhausted, too sick, that you're not interested in it in any form, right? 
And that's when, and this, this comes up a lot. So I'm appreciative of sort of being, being uh, reminded of this point is that we also then want to widen our definition of intimacy. I think oftentimes we like to use intimacy as a euphemism for sexual activity. I really discourage people from doing that, right? Intimacy is very broad. It includes doing puzzles together, cuddling on the couch, a good talk, right? Having a drink together. And in that can include sexual activity as a piece of it. So often we as humans, if we are used to engaging in a sexual activity, and then for whatever reason, we've fallen out of that habit or or are interested in it, we also let go of lots of intimacy, all of the other types of it. And that is one of the things that I would say I do work with my patients on a lot, especially when they're in periods of more active disease or maybe mental health, right? Maybe they're also more depressed, more anxious. There are lots of different things can, that can that can reduce our sexual desire. But we also talk about let's make sure that we're still engaging in the type of intimacy that feel good. So let's get get you guys sitting on the couch a little bit closer again, right? Let's talk about holding hands. Let's talk about having a date night, even if that means that you need to be really clear as a couple that right now sexual activity is off the table. Right. And sort of being clear, though, with each other on what your expectations are and and being flexible with when they can change. I think that's a really good reminder for folks that yeah, you're right, that things don't have to lead to intercourse. Mm-hmm. It can the intimacy is still necessary as part of the relationship. If people were interested in trying to learn a little bit more about some ways to be intimate or some ways to expand their repertoire of what is possible for them. Are, do you have any like books? tips, tools, just some ways for people to, you know, just maybe start to open that door and explore a little bit. Yeah. Thankfully, within the field of sex therapy and sexual health, there are a lot of self-help books that are also really fun and entertaining reads. And so I will definitely, if it would be okay, I'd, I can follow up um, with some books that I think would be my top recommendations for folks. Like I said, they're really fun reads. Some of them, I think some of the best ones, quite honestly, are more geared towards women and do have more of a heterosexual focus, though I really think that they can still definitely apply to folks that aren't in that category. And then I also, there are some good recommendations for men as well that we can put in there. And I would say, yeah, like actually like bibliotherapy, right? Reading your way through things is actually a really good way to start with this. And oftentimes that's part of what we recommend in sex therapy is that you actually concurrently, I might recommend one of these books to my patients that they sort of get started with reading as we're going. So yeah, I think that that is actually a a great recommendation and not everybody may need to see a sex therapist. Like you may find that actually sort of widening your view and and reading some things can can get you sort of unstuck from maybe where you are. But certainly there may be folks that are, you know, if you're kind of reading something and and feeling like I'm a little hopeless or feeling a little bit lost, okay, then definitely let's look for a sex therapist. And thankfully they are pretty accessible to find. Uh, that it goes to one of the questions you wanted to make sure we talked about, which is how do you find a sex therapist? So if you are interested in working with somebody like yourself and you're not fortunate enough to be in Chicago, how would one find a sexual health therapist? So there is actually a very convenient directory online. The website is asect.org. It's A-A-S-E-C-T dot org. And that is actually the official website for the um, training and certification body for sex therapists, 
sex counselors, and sex educators. So there's actually kind of three different domains that you can fall into, and this organization um, manages the three. But there is a directory that is prominently featured on that page that folks can click into, and you can actually put in your zip code, and it will populate a list of certified sex therapists in your area. So these are all going to be people that have gone through very extensive training. They are going to be, again, mental health professionals, psychotherapists already who have then gone through that additional training. And I can tell you that it is much easier to find a sex therapist than it is a GI psychologist. So if you are somebody listening and you're like, well, I can't find a GI psychologist. There isn't one at my hospital. We feel your pain. We are trying to get more people trained out there. But sex therapists, um, thankfully, there are actually many of them. And although, yes, do I think it would be ideal for folks with IBD to work with a sex therapist that has that additional training in IBD. Yeah, I think that would be amazing. But that being said, people who are sex therapists typically are very accustomed to working with people with medical conditions because that's a huge overlap. And so I think don't be scared off. Um, a person, a therapist may already have experience with IBD. And if they don't, check with them and see if they're comfortable, you know, getting more competent. The unfortunate thing is you might have to be providing a little bit of that education to them. But a good therapist is going to be really open to learning new things and to be connecting to other colleagues, maybe who have a little bit more of that GI experience. Great advice. We do know that, especially in talking to some of our guests, that when you have surgery, along with that can come some sexual dysfunction. Mm-hmm. You know, you have surgery, scar tissue, you know, depending on the type of surgery, it may impact your ability to have certain types of, you know, penetrative sex. So mm-hmm. when somebody is getting to the stage where they are either needing to have surgery or they're considering surgery, are you brought in at that point to maybe do a little bit of like the, hey, here's some mm. things to consider? Boy, w- that would be great, wouldn't it? I'm guessing you have only a certain amount of hours in your day. That's though, also so. very true. So there's a, there is actually a very legitimate bandwidth concern, yep. Yep. but also I would just say that we haven't quite gotten there in terms of sort of the norm. The good thing I would say is that I think we have fabulous colorectal nurses and APNs and the surgeons themselves. I, I do think oftentimes end up actually being a bit more comfortable with some of these conversations because there can be such a, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like literal impact that needs to be discussed. So I actually do think, especially on the colorectal side, there there are more of these conversations happening. But I do think that it would be wonderful if some even just sort of basic conversation could be part of it around the psychosocial aspects that are going to come up around that. But I would not say that that is standard at this point. So I think it's it's really more so that those, um, those are conversations that I'll have with patients, but it is typically because the patient is presenting to me for a different reason, like they're really anxious about their surgery. And then as we're talking, again, I would be very proactive about making sure I also ask about, is any of that about maybe related to anxiety about your sexual function? Because my guess is you've heard a little bit about that. Sometimes it's not at all. And sometimes, oh yeah, yeah, I am pretty nervous about the possibility that this surgery could really negatively impact my sexual function. And so that's more so I would say how it might come up now. But I think- Honestly, fabulous idea to maybe even put together, hey, at the very least, like some kind of presentation that maybe can get sent to them, but not there yet. Moral of the story is advocate for yourself and ask questions when you have them. I've said this on the show. It might be a little while, but I've said this on the show. You 
are the captain of this care team. That you have a care team. If you have, if you have to have surgery, the surgeon is part of the team, and your GI is part of the team. Any of the nurses are part of the team. If you see a mental health professional, part of your team, RD, mm-hmm. part, every, all these people are part of the team. But you are the team captain, so you have to yes. direct your team. You have to put your team in the positions. You have to tell them what to do, ask them questions, and in this case, I would say ask questions. If you have concerns and a mental health professional is not part of your team or sexual health professional is not part of your team, you do have other medical professionals other day to answer your questions. So if you have concerns, ask questions, ask as many questions as you want, because guess what? You are paying these people to provide a service for you. Mm -hmm. So ask as many GD questions as you want. Mm -hmm. Well, and if you're not comfortable asking it face to face, use like your portals and Mm -hmm. send a message, you know, and through my chart or something like that and say, Hey, you know, I didn't ask you this because frankly, it's embarrassing or I'm embarrassed or whatever. And like, you know, or I thought you looked embarrassed, might be your doctor looks embarrassed, but (laughs) you know, more likely, Uh (laughs) you know, but Uh you know, I'm concerned about how this may affect my sexuality. Is there, is there a possibility that that's the case? Yeah. Speaking of things like that, though, when I mentioned to you that I started listening to another podcast you were on called IBD Drive Time, which is a podcast that's aimed at professionals. And you mentioned a statistic on there that kind of what I literally (laughs) stopped, paused and wrote it down (laughs) is that there was a recent study of women with inflammatory bowel disease and the rates of of sexual dysfunction amongst women starting at 50% Mm -hmm. and goes up to 97%, I think you said, which is basically 100%. So that was shocking statistics. Mm -hmm. So where did that study come from? What exactly were they tracking? Tell us a little bit more about what the where those stats came from and why is yeah. it such a huge case? This is yeah. Amazing. So that was really based on a conglomeration of a number of different studies that have been done. So it's really showing that there is a range, which could be as little as, oh, only about 50%. <laughs> one out of every two women with IBD and as high as every single woman with IBD basically could be walking around with quote sexual dysfunction. What I would say to give that context is that when we use a term like sexual dysfunction, it can include a lot of things. It can include even not being satisfied with sexual activity, though things might be sort of mechanically working okay, all the way to, I don't engage in sexual activity at all because it hurts, because I don't want to, you know, any of those reasons. So it really is a range. So I think like not to say that someone's satisfaction isn't important here, but I think hopefully it gives a little bit more context to why that can be so high. What I would say is that too, I mean, that could be pretty mild. And with some of the screening measures that are used, which are really like self-report measures, questionnaires, It's actually really common in the general population as well for women to rate quite high on sexual dysfunction and at times to rate quite low in sexual satisfaction. That's not like a statistic that I think should make anyone here feel good, (laughs) right? Like that's sad, but I think it's a reflection on issues that are related, quite frankly, not even just to Western society. I think it's really kind of worldwide. Again, like women's pleasure in particular is not something that has ever been a real priority. And we see that in these statistics, right? Then I think we look at women and men, but right now we're talking about that statistic for women with medical conditions. It amplifies all of this fatigue, pain, 
surgeries, medications, all of those factors individually increase a person's likelihood that that part of their life is going to be negative and negatively impacted. So I think, again, it can be, and, and I have these conversations with my patients with IBD, and it actually, like, it is a bummer. It's a bummer to hear, to normalize, to have to normalize. Like, you very likely are not totally satisfied with your sex life, and that's not surprising to us. That stinks to hear, but I think it is important because we know that so many men and women with IBD do struggle with that part of their lives, I would at least rather that they feel a little bummed out, but don't feel like it's just them. Like this is just a them problem. And then thankfully, as I've mentioned, the good thing about this is the next thing I could say is it's really treatable. If you are interested in addressing these sexual issues, sex therapy and in general working on sexual health issues is like one of the most hopeful things I feel as a therapist that I can do because there is so much really effective work that we can do if a person is interested and motivated in making changes in that area. That's really lovely to hear. When you're talking about this, and you're talking about these people with sexual dysfunction, does that measure the people that perhaps are choosing, like are choosing not to be sexual, don't, are not interested necessarily in intimacy or sexual relationships? Like, Because I know yeah. there are some folks that are just asexual. Yeah, absolutely. My honest answer is I'm not sure because these studies are all done in very different ways. Yep. But in general, if they're being done well, it shouldn't. If a person is really satisfied with the fact that they're not sexual or the fact that they're only sexual in very limited contexts or whatever the situation is, really good research measures shouldn't be picking up on that as a sexual problem. But those are things that I would say are kind of hard to disentangle. Like if a person, yeah. um, it is those are conversations that are more easily had one-on-one -on -one than by using a questionnaire because a questionnaire may not have a very easy time knowing why that person said, no, I never have intercourse. No, I never engage in masturbation. Whereas in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, that's actually not that difficult to assess no. for. In research studies, right, like we're looking for big sample sizes, big numbers of people. And so we do usually rely on research like that. I would say anecdotally, though, you know, of the folks that I'm working with, it does course, it's going to be a biased sample of people that come and talk to me about this. But more often than not, there is some desire to be sexual in some capacity. But I, I certainly have worked with people who like, nope, I am not sexually active. I have a very low libido and I am A-OK. -okay. And I'm like, great, we would not call that a problem, right? Come back and see me if things change. This is one of the issues with, I would imagine, your work in general, just mental health slash you know, sexual health is it's very nuanced. There is not really, it isn't black or white. You know, it's, it isn't that you like it or you don't. It isn't that you are, you know, you're depressed or you're not. Everything mm -hmm. is nuanced with this. So it must be incredibly difficult to design research studies around some of this stuff. It is. How are you measuring any of it this? It is. And then when we get into issues related to patients who are queer or in the LGBTQI group, we don't really have, I mean, that's growing, but we really don't have good data on any of that. We are really only now, I think, starting to try to understand even prevalence rates, right? When we get to 
a queer population. And then we think about them in a sexual context. And then we think about them also with IBD. We're using best clinical judgment. That is a huge gap in our knowledge area. And so again, like I think some of it is not coming out of a place of bad intention, but it's you need numbers. You need numbers of people to actually do research. And so I think we we really need to um, to bolster the kinds of research that we're doing, but be creative too about how we can better learn about the experiences of these folks. And maybe with more qualitative studies, maybe more interview design, right? Focus groups if we don't really have the ability to draw huge sample sizes. But so yeah, I would say that's a, a big area. But again, thankfully, I would say in psychology, you know, we're used to not necessarily having research guide everything we do. There's a science and then there's an art to it and there is experience and there is getting to know the person in front of you. And so even though I I don't have to say there's a, a limited body of knowledge. There is still plenty that I feel very comfortable with. I think my patients that fall into those groups, groups feel comfortable with because we are working with them one-on-one and understanding their experiences, their preferences, their unique needs. The other statistic that you quoted was that men were 14 to 40%. That was the, the men's statistic that went along with the female statistic. So mm-hmm. still not super great rates. I mean, 40% is still a lot of guys. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about, was there any context to that one you can help provide? Yeah, I think that when it comes to men, and I will be honest, it's really hard here not to talk in terms of kind of binary gender norms here, but there are some generalizations that are pretty well known between men and women when it comes to things that impact sexual desire and sexual function. And in general, for most, but not all men, there aren't quite as many psychosocial turnoffs when it comes to being interested in sexual activity, that it can be a little bit easier to what we actually have a term for it. It's called spontaneous desire. And it's sort of just like desire for sexual activity that just kind of like comes out of the blue. Like I'm kind of ready to go and I don't know why. For women, generally speaking, desire is more responsive. And so it doesn't occur as often out of the blue for women. There needs to be something in their environment or someone in their environment that kind of gets them a little bit interested in that. It's well known. Again, it doesn't mean that it's true for every person, but it does kind of fall along gendered lines. So again, then when you put that in the context of looking at assessing for prevalence of, quote, sexual dysfunction, which we talked about can mean lots of different things. It's just the fact that for many men, there's going to be more wiggle room in terms of things like fatigue, depression, body image concerns, they're going to have usually a lot more buffer before their sexual desire and their sexual function starts to decline. For women, those psychosocial factors do tend to impact their sexual desire and their sexual function more quickly. Got it. Thank you for that. That's that's helpful to hear. Because I do I mean I do know there's some some aspects of like, for instance, surgeries and stuff that can cause some erectile dysfunction. It's yeah. truly like, you know, physiological reasons mm-hmm. why perhaps they may be struggling with yeah. um, well, sexuality. And just to add, there are pretty effective pills for that. 
I mean, yeah, right? shock, shockingly, they've managed to figure that out. Yeah. And, uh, for, yeah. for women, we are not there. Few pharmaceutical companies might tell you differently, but we are not there. Um, so it's, it is unfortunately less of an easy fix than yeah. popping a pill. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Thank you so much for coming on the show and really diving into a topic that is considered to be so taboo, as we've all said over the course of the past hour. But it is time, unfortunately, for me to ask you the last question. So what is the one piece of advice that you would give? You can pick patients or providers or both. So what's the okay. one piece of advice that you would give to the IBD community? I think I can do both. So for the providers, I will go a little more general, taking us just a step back from the sexual health focus. And I will just say that be mindful of how much your communication, whether it's in person, whether it's via electronic medical record or the phone, be mindful of how important that is in the life of somebody with IBD. And to the extent that you can treat it with care, you know, being mindful of keeping things short and sweet is good, but it's okay to put a little bit of, of emotional context into that message. I see so much, I, so much of the work that I do is involved in trying to help contextualize medical interactions and communications. And so I do think that that is, is so important. So that's what I would say from a provider side, just don't minimize the importance of your communication. And for patients, folks with IBD out there listening, I would have to actually echo something that Robin had said earlier about asking questions. So I guess I'm stealing a little bit from you, Robin. Sorry about that. Do ask questions and don't worry about whether they're the right person to ask that question to or whether that person has an answer. That's their thing to be honest with you about, right? They can say, oh, really interesting question. It's not the one that I know and should hopefully help you find an answer from the appropriate person. And don't assume that they may not know the answer or that just because you asked it, it's stupid. I have um, patients ask me questions all the time. And like sometimes like, oh, I don't know if this is stupid. Even if I don't know it, that doesn't mean it's a stupid question, right? And I think especially so when it comes to these more highly stigmatized or taboo issues, when it like when it comes to sexual health, don't worry about it making your provider uncomfortable. If it does, you feel like it makes them uncomfortable. That's a them problem, not a you problem. And so I think like, unfortunately or not, the onus is oftentimes still going to be on you as the patient to bring up these issues. I hope in five or 10 years, it won't be the case, but it's okay to lead by example and, and to ask those questions and, and write it down. I know, write it down if you need it. Elise, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun to have you on and I appreciate yeah, your um, flexibility in answering all the wild questions I think I probably threw at you. <laughs> such a pleasure to have you on the show. We really, really appreciate it and are very hopeful that you are training a whole army of people that yes. are going to go out into our community and really make sure that this is a quick that's brought up regularly with providers and that you know there's a resource for people to go to. So thank you so much for what you do. Thank you everyone for listening and cheers. Cheers, everybody. Hello, this is Dr. Elise Fidel. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and share it with a friend.